All right, installment two. If you have your Bibles, open it up to the book of Ephesians. I'm going to be reading out of Ephesians one momentarily. We're in the middle of our identity series. And we need to be reminded, as we got it started last week, that everything that is made available to us from the Lord is based in our identity. If your identity is stolen or if you don't understand your identity, in other words, if you don't understand who you are in Christ Jesus, remember what we spent a lot of time on last week was being in Christ. What does it mean to be in Christ? How do you get to be in Christ? Once you're in Christ, your identity changes. And when you understand that identity, you will find yourself living in abundancy. Now, if your identity has been stolen or lost or you're not getting it, what happens is you begin to live below the place that the Lord has available for you. So last week, ground zero, we made sure that you had the identity question settled. And uh, I was delighted to see that so far as I could see, by way of opportunity, everybody said, my identity settled. So now we're going to be emphasizing what it means to be in Christ. And I want to read to you out of Ephesians chapter 1, because in this chapter, Paul says some things that you need to get a hold of. Now, as I read this, I know you're going to be hearing my voice, but imagine not only that Paul wrote it, but imagine that this is the word of God. This is the Lord writing to you. Listen, as we're going to begin to talk about what I've entitled, How to Lose your identity. It's kind of a backwards way of getting somewhere I want to go. But I'm going to talk about how to lose your identity. And in knowing, understanding how to lose it, we're going to help you maintain it. All right, Ephesians 1, beginning with verse 3. Listen to this. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every... And you know what every means? Every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, in Christ, just as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before Him in love, having predestined us to adoption as sons. And I know, ladies, as you read this, it is, it is in the masculine form, but understand that in God's eyes, we're sons and daughters, sons by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, by which he made us accepted in the beloved. Now listen to, to this phrase that keeps coming up. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, according to the riches of his grace, which he made to abound toward us, in all wisdom and prudence, having made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in himself, that in the dispensation of the fullness of the times he might gather together in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are on earth in him. Are you hearing it? He keeps saying, in Him, in Christ. Verse 11, he says it again. In Him also we've obtained an inheritance. So you see, there's no inheritance unless you're what? In Him. See, that's why it's so critical that you make sure you understand that you're in Him. Because there's no inheritance. Nothing works unless you're in Him. You've obtained an inheritance, being predestined according to the purpose of Him, who works all things according to the counsel of His will. That's good news. Everything that's going on in your life, if you're in him, everything that's going on right now is working to your good and his glory. That we who first trusted in Christ should be to the praise of his glory. Now listen, verse 13. In him, you also trusted after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also having believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise who is the guarantee of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession to the praise of his glory. That's such a great passage. I know it sounds kind of 
religious to ears that aren't used to hearing it. But there is so much going on in there that Paul is saying, when you're in him, anything's possible. When you're in him, your inheritance is activated. When you're in him, that which God has by way of blessing is now a possibility in him. So here's the deal. You don't want to lose your identity. So how to lose your identity. I know it's a strange way to get here, but just take the ride with me, okay? Years ago, um, both of our parents, both Tracy's and my parents, received a phone call from someone who was pretending to be my oldest son, Clay. I don't know where they were calling from, but they found, they found the names of, of Clay's grandparents, our parents, and they began to pitch a story to them. And this story obviously had to deal with him being in trouble somewhere, and he didn't want to call his parents. And so he was calling the grandparents in order to solicit money out of them. And it was a fairly elaborate story. And both, both sets of grandparents, our parents, would say to us later, you know, as we heard the voice on the phone, it didn't exactly sound like Clay, but we didn't know. And so my parents actually were the ones that before they, they you know, sent any money anywhere, they made a couple of phone calls because something didn't sound just quite right with regards to Clay or his character or, or how he would probably handle something like this. And so they checked it all out. They ran it all down until finally they figured out that that wasn't Clay on the phone. But my mom, interestingly enough, asked the guy to call back a little bit later so she could talk to him. So he did. He called back a little bit later. And uh, my mom, I guess, put him on the hook for just a little bit uh, for trying to manipulate or to scam her. And eventually, you know, the guy hung up the phone and we all realized that it wasn't Clay, but somebody who did his best to steal Clay's identity in order to access something that they really wanted, which was my grandparents, his grandparents' money. Now listen, both of his grandparents, both mine and my wife's, Parents would have been more than delighted to have helped the real clay. But because the identity was suspect, they obviously withheld the blessing. Now, that's a great story just to kind of segue into what Paul was writing here because Paul is reminding the Ephesians for some reason, and maybe I'll speculate on this in just a moment, but he's reminding the Ephesians that that everything they have from God and every possibility that they might want to access is directly linked to them knowing their identity. In other words, God has no problem as our Heavenly Father in order to bless you with every blessing. If you're in trouble as the fake clay was, they would have had no trouble blessing him with resources or finance had he been the real clay. There's no problem in this area. But the problem is when your identity is not settled and when your identity isn't what you think it may be, God is hamstrung in certain ways with regards to releasing to you that which is your inheritance. Are you hearing me? God wants to help. He really isn't withholding. He's not trying just to make your life difficult. He wants to do things that shows himself to be strong in your life, but these things are tied to identity. And it was this issue that became an issue in the church at Ephesus. Now, for me, the church at Ephesus, the book of Ephesians, uh, for me, is the prophetic possibility of our region and our city, Charleston. Whenever I read of Ephesus, I always think of Charleston. Now, the reason this is so is because the characteristics of Ephesus, in many ways, I think, are applicable to our own region and to our own city. Ephesus had a great Christian witness that was a part of the culture of that city. In fact, Timothy, and some of you probably already know this, Timothy ended up being the pastor at the church of Ephesus. He was the, he was the lead pastor, the head elder. He was a protege of Paul, Paul would communicate to him. And so we have a lot of input into Ephesus just through the writings of Ephesians and the two letters uh, to Timothy. We have a lot of input and then there's a little 
uh, discourse concerning Ephesus with regards to the church in the book of the Revelation. And so we really have a lot of insight into these people at Ephesus. And, and, and here you have this church going on. And, and we need to get a hold of this, that, that, that the church at Ephesus was a massive church. They said at the pinnacle of Ephesus and the revival and the church's work, in a city of about 100,000, they're guessing, Ephesus was at this time, that about one quarter of the population, 25% of the population, were actually born-again believers. So Timothy was pastoring a church in Ephesus that we would number about 25,000. So hear me when I say this. Mega churches aren't necessarily bad in and of themselves because you can find mega in the Bible. So hear me when I say this. Mega because of numbers is not bad. It's not the number that makes it bad. It, it's, it's really its identity or its character or its health. So, so Timothy's pastoring a, a really large church. But hear me when I say this, that the church at Ephesus didn't get there accidentally or capriciously. Hear me when I say this. The church at Ephesus didn't grow to be a large church because they attended a lot of church growth conferences and they understood how to market their brand and they, and they had great sermon series and their memes always looked good on social media. That's not what happened in Ephesus. Ephesus got to be Ephesus in its strength and its power and its numbers because they knew their identity. They were in Him. Now this is the lost message that we don't get anymore in America because we think it can happen in us. Nothing happens in us in the sense that we can self-generate it, but it's when us is in Him. And when Him then becomes in us, it is Him who through us does the work. Hear me, when they, when they landed at the shores of Ephesus, these Christians, Paul included, they battled a culture that was steeped in issues. It was steeped in immorality. It was steeped in pagan religion. Ephesus was known as the hub of the cult of Diana or the temple of Artemis. And, and, and it was literally, it was a, a type of, you know, Canaanite fertility cult that they, that they, that they merged uh, pagan practices with perverted sexual behavior and, and it all revolved around religion and everybody participated in it, it, it because it is yielded to the flesh. It was everything that would want the flesh, you know, to feel good. And, and so when they come into this culture that had been steeped in this craziness and immoralities and perversions and, and error, I, I mean, you don't come in there seeking, you know, just a debate. You got to come in there in the power of God. There's a great story uh, that I, you know, years ago that I read about John, the actually the apostle John who was at Ephesus as well. And it talks about how he was preaching the gospel. I guess he was street preaching one day in front of the temple of Artemis and the statue of Diana was there was a giant statue. And, and I believe if I'm not mistaken, Ephesus had some of the seven ancient wonders of the world. I, be, I believe were there. I may be mistaken, but I believe that was the case. So it was it was an incredible city. The temple of Artemis was there. The, the statue of Diana was there. And he was preaching in front of the temple. I love these guys. They just went down and, and found out where the, the hub of it was. And so they were preaching. He was preaching out in front of the temple. And the people began to mock him. And so John, what did John do? John just stopped and he began to pray. And he began to pray. This is in a history book. I found this in a history book. A secular historian was writing this account. I wasn't reading it in a Bible or in some commentary years later. This was a, a secular historian of the time was writing this. And as he's writing it, he says in, in, in just sort of this, this analytical way, John began to pray that his God would show himself to be strong. Suddenly, out of a seemingly clear sky, a lightning bolt came forth, struck the statue of Diana and split it in two. And then the last phrase he said was this, and many people were converted that day in Ephesus. <laughs> I love that statement. I remember the first time I read it, I did exactly what you did. I started to chuckle. I said, I bet there were. I, I, I bet they had revival that day in front of that pagan temple. But it's because John understood his identity. 
In the book of Acts, this is another place, Acts chapter 19, you see Paul going to Ephesus. You ought to read chapter 19 sometime. It's a really interesting chapter because there we find the verses where it talks about how Paul would pray over hanky, handkerchiefs and aprons and uh, he would hold them next to his body and then he would send them off to people in Ephesus and they would take those hankies and aprons and they would lay them on sick people and the sick people would be healed. There was this kind of power that was taking place. It's the same chapter that tells us the story of the seven sons of Sceva who are trying to deliver the demon-possessed man. And some of you know the story that they begin trying to do this deliverance ministry because I guess they've been watching Paul and others do this. And so they're trying to deliver this guy who's filled with, with a demon and, 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 as the, and they're adjuring and exercising the demon in prayer and they're saying these words, they're saying, in the name of Jesus of whom Paul preaches. And they're trying to deliver this guy. <laughs> and the demon manifests. Oh, it's, it's, it's a great picture of identity because the demon says, I know Jesus and I know Paul, but who are you? And he jumps on him. And literally beats the fire out of him. I mean, he, this one demon-possessed guy kicks the hound out of the seven sons of Sceva. I'm telling you, that happened because Paul knew his identity and could deliver and heal, but the seven sons of Sceva had not settled the identity issues. Listen, our city, our beloved city of Charleston can be impacted by the power of God, but it's only going to be impacted by a people who know their identity. And it's interesting that Paul writes Ephesians, and as he's writing this letter, I, I said to myself, it's interesting because of all the great stories that come out of Ephesus, he's writing this, and it's almost as if he's reminding them. He's saying, remember what happens when you're in him. When you're in Christ. And I started to think to myself that maybe by the time this letter is going forth, that what we begin to read in the book of the Revelation, where it talks about the church at Ephesus and its challenges, I'm wondering if we had reached the place where Paul says, listen, it ain't happening anymore because you guys are forgetting your identity. You're losing your identity. And he's reminding them that it's in him, in him, in him, you are without blame. In him, you have every spiritual blessing. In him, you can abound in wisdom. In him, you obtain an inheritance. In him, all things work for you. In him, you are sealed with a guarantee. In him. If you're not in him, you're in trouble. You are in trouble. So I started just meditating and thinking, okay, how do... How do you get to the place where a believer loses their sense of identity? Here's, here's, my, here's my theory at this moment. That, that if, if you can understand how identity is lost, you can take every effort to make sure you don't do that. Are you following me? I, I, I can tell you things, and I can probably take it from a more positive angle, and maybe that would be helpful and... I'll do it again next, you know, next time I'm up, I'll be more positive. But hear me. I'm, 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 it's, like, it's like a father to the children, or, or, and, 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 and I get it. That I'm, I'm not suggesting you're all kids. Don't misunderstand me. But I'm, I'm looking at you just like you might look at, look at other people in your life. And you would say to them, I'm going to tell you what not to do. Because if you, if you avoid this, it will go a long way to keeping you out of this position where you're always needy and beggarly, you're always, you're always being attacked, you're always being overcome. If you can just avoid a couple of things here, this will go a long way. Are you following me? Now, I'm not, hear, hear me right now. We are, we are taking out of the equation your salvation, okay? So, so I'm not talking about whether you're saved or not, okay? Don't, we're not dealing with that issue right now. You know, that's an interesting issue, but we're not dealing with that issue. I'm talking about your identity with regards as to what is available to you to live life now as a victorious believer. All right? Now, let me share with you how we lose this stuff. Number one is this. We lose 
our sense of identity because, what does it say? We forget. We forget. There's an interesting passage in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. And we all know the Corinthian church was fraught with problems. And in chapter 3 of 1 Corinthians, Paul begins to identify some of the issues they have going on in uh, an equally a great church with loads of possibility that was living in an equally perverse culture. And he begins to say to them some words. He says in chapter 3, he's dealing with the, the, the believer, he's dealing with the church personally, where he says some things. He says, listen, I, I, there's strife among you. There's envy among you. Jealousy, envy among you. There are divisions among you. You're, you're acting sectarian. Everybody says, well, I love Paul. And others say, well, I love Cephas. And others say, well, I'm just into Jesus. And, and, and he rebukes them all. And he says, you're sectarian in this. He says, I want to I preach meaty things to you, but we have to keep going back. And I have to keep giving you milk. And, and he calls them carnal. The word sarks, carnal, is how it's translated. Sometimes it's translated flesh. So he's looking at these believers and he's saying, you're being fleshly in all of this. Hear me now. Your, your strife, envy, division, sectarianness, all of these things. He says, they're, they're fleshly. They're fleshly in their roots. But this is the interesting phrase that always speaks to me out of those first few verses of chapter 3. He says this, Paul said, you are behaving as mere men. I read that and I say to myself, that's an interesting thing right there. He looks at him and he says, listen, all this is going on. You are mere men. You forgot who you are. And when you forget who you are, really, in him, you become a mere man. That's why the church, the church today in America is the mere church. We're mere men. Why is that? It's because we've lost our identity. We've forgotten who we are. We cultivate the flesh rather than cultivating the spirit. We remind ourselves of our environment instead of reminding ourselves of him and who he is and what he has said. In fact, I have defined carnal this way. I have defined carnal as the one who is dominated by their senses. You know what your senses are? Your senses are what? Your, your touch, taste, See, hear, smell. Five senses. Touch, taste, see, hear, smell. A carnal person is one who is dominated by those five senses. Now hear me now. I'm not saying those senses in and of themselves are evil because how many of you know I like to touch things and we all like to touch things, don't we? I like to touch, I like to touch Ford Mustangs. Camaros. I like to touch my wife. Oh, everybody got quiet there. Oh, where's he going with this? So touch isn't bad, is it? Touching isn't bad, it's what you touch. Tasting isn't bad, it's what you taste. I like eating. I could eat Mexican food five, five out of seven nights. Amen. God bless, God bless the Hispanic people. Because I love Mexican food. I love the taste, I love the smells, the smells of Thanksgiving, the smells of Christmas, the smell of peppermint in your coffee, the smell of pumpkin in the oven, the smells. There's nothing wrong with smell, it just depends what you're smelling, what you're seeing, what you're hearing. So, so these things are not evil, listen to me, they're not evil, but the problem is when they exercise dominion over you. And that's when it becomes dicey. Because suddenly when life hits you, and it hits us in all kinds of ways, we can be tempted in certain ways. You know, ladies, you see this hunk of a man, or, or guys, you see this beautiful woman, and, and all of a sudden your eyes start going that direction. And it's not that seeing is wrong, it's what you're laying your eyes upon. And, and it's all of a sudden it's exercising dominion over you. God never intended that the senses be the place of dominion. He intended your spirit to be the place of dominion. So we're carnal when our, our senses are exercising dominion. Now hear me really carefully about this because this is what it means to be a mere man or a mere woman. It's when your flesh is exercising dominion. And so you see 
you're going down the interstate, you're going down I-26 like we all do, and, and all of a sudden some whack job cuts you off. And you see it, you maybe had to put your brakes on and, 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 and everything that went on, and all of a sudden everything inside of you is road rage. At that moment, the flesh has exercised dominion. It happens in so many ways. Why do you think the enemy makes sure life hits you? Why do you think he can throw things at us over and over again? He can create scenarios. He can create circumstances. He can create things that are bizarre even. And we say, how in the world would something like that even happen? And, he just, and he'll keep throwing things at you. And the reason he keeps throwing things at you is because this is what he knows for most people. And that is senses will exercise dominion. And instantly they'll become fleshly or carnal and they'll yield to that. And all of a sudden they will forget, hear me now, they forget who they are. I am not a mere man. I don't have to fly off the handle like a mere man. I don't have to lay my eyes on that thing like a mere man. I've listened to guys kind of teach and laugh about this, about how, how their eyes are always going around. Listen, if we can't exercise dominion over our eyes, guys, how are we going to exercise dominion over the nations? That's how I preach it. I preach this, that when I can get my senses under some sense of dominion, God will start throwing me the car keys to some destiny. We forget who we are. You get a bad report from the doctor and all of a sudden your life is falling apart. Listen, you're becoming a mere man or a mere woman. The bad report is attacking your senses. You heard something that suddenly has caused a curveball in your life that's causing you to forget who you are. In Him I am healed, I am whole, and I shall live and I shall not die. That's why you got to nail down that identity stuff. You lose your job and you say, oh my God, how am I going to pay the bills? Everything's falling apart. What are we going to do? I'm going to have to eat next month. And we're going on and on and on and on and on. And you become a mere man and you forget because your senses have been hit by life. You forget who you are, that in him there has never been a moment that he has seen the righteous begging for bread. That's what the word says. He says that. It's my children. My children aren't going to have to beg. My children aren't going to have to scramble. My children can rest in me. I've got this. I'll bring it to pass. Yes, you be diligent, but I've got this all under control. But circumstantially, we get hit. Senses exercise dominion, and all of a sudden we forget who we are. People do this all the time. They get sick. They get unexpected bills. Whatever curveball, they get some setback. And the instant it happens, i tell you why it happens. It's to get you to forget who you are. And, and, and that's how we lose identity. Because we just do life. Not realizing when the setback comes, the first... I, I was thinking about this. One of the first things that should come to mind when you're having a setback type moment is for you to say this in, inside. Just say this to yourself. Wait a minute. Who am I? Who am I? Who am I? Because you get that nailed down again and you remember, hey, I'm an heir. I'm a joint heir with Christ. He has provided already every spiritual blessing in the heavenly place that I can go now into my prayer closet and I can call down and I can access and he will move for me because I'm one of his kids and he loves me. Who am I? I will not forget at this moment. The enemy wants me to forget. The enemy wants me to think I'm just a mere man. I'm just a mere woman. No, 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 no. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. And it says this, and forget what? Not all his benefits. Sometimes you just got to look at your soul, kind of, and just talk to yourself. Do you know that, that verse really provides the biblical basis for you talking to yourself? A lot of people think you're crazy if you talk to yourself. No, the Bible says you ought to talk to yourself. Bless the Lord, O oh my soul, and all that is within me. So I'm talking to you in there. Soul, bless him. Telling you right now, spirit, rise up, bless him. We're going to bless him. I'm not a mere man. I am. I am a son. I am a daughter. I'm a child of the king. 
I am the head and not the tail. I'm above and not below. I am. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Come on, you know, these are all verses you know. But you got to talk to yourself and you have to remind yourself who you are and not forget. I will not forget whose I am. And I am in him. Are you following me? Now you forget, you lose your identity. Okay, number two. How do people lose? I've watched this in Christians all through the years. They exchange. They, they forget and then they exchange. Years ago, um, I was uh, at a church. Probably if I mentioned it, you'd, you'd all know where it was. And I, I, I just won't mention it because I have pastored in some other circles other than Charleston, although I've been here for now over 20 years. But, but I was in a situation where... Uh, there was a woman and there was a conversation going on and uh, she was just remarking about her life. She was kind of telling about her life. And in this conversation, it was interesting and, and it was kind of the way it was said that it just kind of, you knew that there was more to it than maybe even as I can say it. But as she was sharing about her life and what her life was and what was meaningful in her life and all kinds of things, she said this phrase, talking of her status, she said, well, you know, I'm a CEO's wife. I'm a CEO's wife. Now, at that moment, I remember when I heard that in this conversation. And, 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 and don't, be, don't be paralyzed if you ever talk to me. I'm not evaluating every conversation this way. No, it's not like if you say something, I go, you know, or something like that. Um, but it was just something inside of me that just clicked because I began, I began, I walked, even at that moment, I knew, I said, that. That is her identity right there. She's a CEO's wife. That's her identity. That, that's, that's where she finds her affirmation. That's where she finds her identity. That's where she finds, finds all, of the, all of the things and that gives her life meaning. Now, ladies, I'm going to get to the men here in just a moment. But ladies, I, I think this is just, I'm, I'm kind of painting a, a broad brush. It's not every lady, perhaps. But I, I've watched enough that I think within the gender, I, I think ladies tend to find identity in their relationships. They find their identities in their husband. Maybe their children. Maybe, maybe they're a mom. I'm a mom. I'm a wife. I, I know we've talked about this in our house. I'm a pastor's wife. And, and, and sometimes even through that, there's, there's identity issues. I'm a president's wife or I'm a, I'm a business owner's wife. And they find their identity in, in, a, in a relationship. Now, hear me for just a moment, because sometimes when those relationships get challenged or what happens if, the, if you're a CEO's wife and the CEO gets fired? What happens to your identity at that moment? What happens if... If your identity is in your kids and your kids just don't always do or, 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 or be what we had hoped they do or be, what happens to your identity at that particular moment? What happens? What happens when things change in life and you have put your identity into something or, you know, a person or something and that person suddenly isn't there or it changes? What happens is your identity goes awry. Why is that? It's because you've exchanged who you are in Christ and that affirmation in trying to find that affirmation this way. Now, guys do it a little bit differently. Guys do it and tend to put their identity in their position and their acquisitions. If guys have a position or if they have a lot of stuff, uh, a lot of times that's where their identity is. And if they lose their position, they feel like what? Losers. Or if somehow all their stuff goes away, they feel like losers. Now hear me, all through the Bible you see Christ dealing with people's, people's root of identity and, and, and how they've exchanged it. Think of the rich young ruler. The rich young ruler couldn't do what Christ asked him, interestingly, because his identity was in his stuff. Jesus, he kept all the law, the Bible says, and Jesus says, well, there's one thing yet you lack. Give, give everything away and come and follow me, and he couldn't do it. Now, it's interesting to me because I've heard that preached a lot of different ways, but I'll tell you this about the rich young ruler. He wasn't asked anything more than the rest of the guys were asked. Here's the deal with the rich young ruler. He just had more stuff than the rest of the guys. But, but it was the same sacrifice. All the rest of the guys left their stuff. 
They just didn't have as much stuff as you. But here's this, it's the same call. And this is the interesting thing I've always asked myself. The rich young ruler will never know what could have happened if he would have released all his stuff. See, that's the problem. You never know what happens when Jesus comes to you and says, are you really in me? Or he gives you this out-of-the-box challenge. Or he's, or he's challenging you to faith or challenging you to something. And, and, and we wrestle with it. You never know the possibilities there. Because the fact of the matter is, since he didn't do it, we'll never know if in that act of sacrifice for Christ, that he may have indeed been blessed back 30, 60, 100-fold. All he got was his stuff because that's where his identity was. If he would have had his identity in Christ, he could have had life and that more abundantly. Jesus would later tell Peter, there's no man who's left houses and land and mother and brother and sister and, and all of this that has not houses, that has not received in this life right now 100-fold. Of course, he did say with persecution, there'll be some challenge with it, but he said that we'll not receive 100-fold. Why is that? It's because we're in him. But we exchange for these beggarly things. The Pharisees couldn't get it. They couldn't get Jesus because their identity was in their religious position. Pilate, Agrippa, Festus, Felix, none of these guys get it. Why? Because their identity was in the throne that their back end was sitting in. They had more confidence in where they were sitting than in the Christ who could do all things. They exchanged it. And I've come to this conclusion, and there may be some who disagree with me, and you're at liberty to think whatever you want to think. As Pastor Houston Miles once said, you've been wrong before. <laughs> but I believe sometimes God allows challenges in our life and challenges in certain areas to recalibrate inside of you where it is that you truly find your identity. Because sometimes I don't think our mouths and our heart always match. I think sometimes we know what to say, but that doesn't mean it's really in there. And sometimes something happens to you and we find out. You said, I, I, think about this. A guy, let's say a guy loses his job. And, and, and all of a sudden, you know, it's absolute freak out. He's lost his job. And, and he's a believer, good man, good guy. But he's freaking out. He just lost his job. Of course, many of us would say, well, I'd freak out too. Which kind of shows where we are. But think about this. He's, he's freaking out. And, and if you could only have this conversation with the Lord, and, he, and he's going, Lord, I've lost my job. How am I going to take care of my family and my responsibilities? And I got bills and I want to be a faithful man and I don't have a job and I don't know where I'm going to get a job. And he's just going down the list. And then, and, and the Lord, I just, sometimes I just see this. It's as if the Lord just says, last week you said you trusted me. Last week you said it didn't matter whatever happened to you. You would trust me. Were you lying? Well, no, I wasn't lying, but I really, you know, it's just the thing to say. All right, we're just checking out if your mouth and your heart match. Identity. Then finally, number, number three is this. How do you lose your, inherit, uh, your identity? They neglected. They neglected. I don't have time to read all these passages to you, but, but read Hebrews chapter 2. Just read the whole thing. I started looking and then I just said, you got to read the whole thing. Hebrews chapter 2 is a specific word to not neglect your salvation. How can you neglect so great a salvation? And honestly, when you think about the nature of salvation, the Hebrew writer, and I believe it's, it's an appropriate application, he's just saying, how can you neglect this identity that's happened to you? Because all things, he goes into it as you read through the book of Hebrews, he begins to talk about how all things are underneath Christ's feet. And then he goes into, at the end of the chapter, he goes, as a son, as a son or as a daughter, and all things are underneath his feet, you become a benefactor. To everything that Christ now stands over. How can you neglect this? My wife is a Hallmark movie addict. Addict. 
I am not an addict. I will watch these movies with her. I tell her all the time, I said, you know what? They just changed the actors and actresses out, and it's just the same. It's the same script, and, you know, they throw one at Christmas. They'll throw one at Thanksgiving, and it's the same thing. I can, it's the, all, the whole thing is the same. But, uh, but she's addicted to this stuff. There are worse things to be addicted to, I'll admit. But, you know, it's always interesting to me. It's, 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 it's like the storyline is something of, of somebody, with, be it male or female, but it's like they're in the big city, they're in the urban area, they got the great job, everything's going their way, they're rich, they're rich, they're rich. And then for some reason they have to go back to the small town that they were a part of and somehow they're confronted that their priorities had been all mixed up and they dumped the girl that they were dating in high school and, and they somehow, you know, and, and, and somehow the girl they're, they're with now is going to go, you know, away and we find out that she's a Jezebel and then, and then they, get, they get back hooked up. See, that's a Hallmark movie. I've just blown every storyline for every Christmas Hallmark movie for you now. How many of you have ever seen Sweet Home Alabama? You ever see that movie? Now, we love that movie. I think that's a funny movie. Reese, Reese, Reese Witherspoon is this, this famous New York City designer, fashion designer, and she's moving in these, these circles, mover, shaker, and she gets, she gets uh, uh, asked to marry, you know, the mayor's son of New York, and, and that was Murphy Brown. What's her name? It wasn't Murphy Brown. It was Candace somebody. Yes, yeah, famous actress, though, I'll just tell you that. And, and yeah, that's right. That's right. So anyway, you know the story. Those of you that watched it, you know, she has to go back because the divorce wasn't final to the guy she liked in high school. And she has to go back to this podunk place in Alabama. And it's interesting because if you listen closely, her accent changes from the beginning of the movie to the end of the movie. Because as she goes back to Alabama, she starts getting that southern sound again. And it's, it's, it's a funny movie and it's funny because we just, we kind of identify in it because she, she recognizes that her identity is all wound up in things that ultimately don't matter and she's ashamed of her old or, or appropriate identity, she doesn't want to go back because she doesn't want to be known as being a part of Hickville, Alabama. And that's what it all revolves around until finally at the end she yields and says she's a hick just like the rest of them. I just blown that movie for those of you that have never seen it. But hear me when I say that that's how we are as believers. We neglect where we've come from and, and, and who we are until finally we're in these circles and we're movers and we're shakers. I have seen this for years. I have seen people that couldn't rub two nickels together come into the house of the Lord and give their heart to Jesus. And they'll sink themselves into the things of God, in the house of God, and they'll, they'll give themselves to it, and they'll practice their precepts, and all of a sudden God will bless them and help them and elevate them and resource them, and suddenly their lives just explode with the goodness of God, and they begin to get consumed with, with toys and houses and lands and everything else, and they get to be a part of the in crowd until suddenly they don't want anything to do with where they came from. And sometimes I think that's the church of America. I think sometimes in America, we have gotten so used to rubbing shoulders with celebrities and politicians and another class, and all of a sudden, when it comes down to the rubber hitting the road, we forget where our true identity is. We think our identity is rubbing shoulders with presidents and celebrities and the who's who. I'm telling you, we are losing, we are neglecting where we came from. This happy, all of you understand this. There are times we're embarrassed to go home. I don't want to go back home. I'm embarrassed to go home. I'm embarrassed. Because there's something that goes on in those gatherings that just we don't want to be a part of anymore. And we've lost our identity. It happens everywhere. It happens in regions of the country. You know, there's there's we call it culture, there's southern culture. Different nations and races have culture. Listen, this isn't bad and it's not racist. It's just saying people grow up. I grew up in the Midwest. We had a culture in there. I was telling my wife the other day, I remember everybody in the Midwest speaks with an R. They'll put an R in certain words that's not there. We don't say Washington, for example. We say Washington. And it's taken me years because I, I preach 
And, it, and, and I think about how you communicate. And so my wife has helped me and I wanted her to help me to where I no longer say Washington dishwasher. I say Washington dishwasher. You don't know how hard that was for me. Now listen to me when I say this, but I'll go back home and I'll hear everybody putting that R in there. Now listen, you can either be embarrassed by it or understand that's where your roots come from. That's what it's about. And, and I think the church, it is time the church understood where our roots are tied to. We have gotten to the place where we think nowadays that, that we get to, we, 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 we figure it out, you know, we identify more with Walmart and with Broadway than we do with the first century catacombs. And so we get embarrassed. We don't want to go back. We don't want to be known that way. Listen, some of you that are of different nationalities, I, I, this is true. When you go back, I know there are different nationalities that when they go back home, that when they go into the house, they talk into that, you know, Italian again or Russian or Ukrainian or whatever the, whatever the, 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 the nationality voice is because that's the, the sound of home. Hear me when I'm telling you, you know the reason why we don't pray in the Spirit or we don't pray in tongues anymore? It's because we've lost our identity. It's the language of the kingdom. It's the language of the family. It's where my roots are. No, I don't do it every moment of the day. No, no, I, I, it's not that, you know, I'm in, I instantly go into somebody's office and I go, shabba-dabba-da. No, I don't do, obviously we don't do those things, but hear, hear me when I say this, there are some people who are so identified to the world that they no longer want to consider their roots and where they came from. We've neglected these things and we've lost our identity. Pentecostals especially have lost their identity. We used to be the church on the other side of the tracks. We used to be the church that couldn't rub the two nickels together. We used to be the church that was just poor, silly, crazy, and they're over there. But we were the church that if you needed to get healed, you go call them. It's interesting how when people have a need, they'll call the crazy people to pray. It's interesting to me when the doctor says cancer, I don't mind you praying in tongues. Pray in tongues all you want to. Because even the world understands that it's your identity that gives you authority. But not now in America. Oh, no, 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 not now. We, we're, we're so busy trying to identify with the world. We're so busy trying to be relevant that we've lost our identity. Now, I don't care what you wear. I don't care if there's holes in your jeans. You wear iron cross across your chest. I don't care. I don't care what, like, what your glasses look like. I don't care. That's got nothing to do with it. It doesn't matter. We'll probably put lights in here one day. Heck, for I may. I, you never know what pastor will do. Maybe I'll blow a fog machine across here one day. I don't care about these things. All I'm saying is this. That is not our identity. Broadway is not my identity. The world is not my identity. Jesus is my identity. His ways. His precepts, His family, this is my identity. I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation. That's why identity is important. You don't have to go to the biggest, best, brassiest. Where's your identity? That's the church in America. And when God raises up great, large churches, they need to look at the world with that influence. And they need to say to them, our identity is in Him. Unashamedly. Yeah, you're going to come in here. If you're lost as a goat in a snowstorm and you come into our church, you're going to hear a language of another kingdom. That's our identity. If you come in here, we're going to lay hands on people and pray for the sick and we're going to declare healing and deliverance. And if a devil shows up, he ain't jumping on nobody. He's just going out the door because that's our identity. He knows us. Oh, to be known in hell. I think an anointing showed up. Identity. Where is your identity? We are living in a culture that is becoming more adverse by the day. I'm telling you, now is not the time to go covert. Now is the time to arise. 
and say, you know what? I love America. I love my nation. I truly do love my nation because this is the nation God put me in. And I think it's a great nation if it lived up to all of its potentials. But hear me when I say this. My identity isn't as an American. My identity is as a Christian. I'm a kingdom person. I am in Christ. And when I pray, statues get blasted. You know why you need to be at church? There's a lot of reasons you need to be at church. But you need to be at church because this is the moment we share the stories of the family. You need every week, at least weekly, you need to hear the stories of your family. How do you know how do you know what your identity is if you don't hear the stories of your family? Weekly we need to remind ourselves that we have a great inheritance. I don't know about you, I need to hear it at least weekly. Honestly, in our house we hear it daily. We do what the family does. We pray for the sick, we cast out devils, we believe God for miracles. People say stupid things about you, even about the house of God that you worship in, you just, you just smile and just say, they just don't, they don't like the family, that's their issue. Because we got our identity down. Well, you aren't up to date. I'm not looking to be up to date, I'm looking to be in Him. I gotta stop. Your identity. I am in Christ. I'm not in the world or in the world. It says I can be in the world but not of the world. In other words, I'm not cut out of the same cloth as the world. But I live in a world. But that's not where my identity comes from. People will make fun of me. They will slosh me. They will accuse me. They won't like me. They'll make up stories about me. They'll say stupid things. They'll do stupid things. They'll stand in my way. They'll stop the work of God. Anything imaginable that the devil can throw, he throws. But I am unstoppable because I am not in the moment. I am in him. In him. And in him, I can do anything. You can too. If you're in him. Are you starting to get the revelation now? Is it kind of coming a little bit?